0: It's not about the corner office. It's not about the fancy title. It's not even about the extra money. Responsible leadership is about taking care of those who choose to follow you, and that care takes on many forms. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you the best guests with the best advice to help you succeed in that endeavor. The Responsible Leadership Podcast is a production of The Leadership phalanx. To find out more about me and what I do, visit leadershipphalanx.com. That's leadership, phalan com. And now, on to today's show. All right, folks. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Responsible Leadership Podcast. I've got an outstanding guest for you today, Mr. Tom Hardison. Tom, thanks for being with us.
1: Thank you, Earl. I'm excited to be here and, and dive into what we can do to really make a difference for people.
0: Oh, yeah. No, this is going to be a great conversation, folks. We, we've already had a lot of great conversation before we hit the record button, and uh, I can't wait to, to get into some of these nuggets with you. But before that, what I want you to know about Tom is he helps leaders build great teams and organizations with a culture of collective leadership, so they can scale from 200 to 1,000-plus employees. He led led change and business growth initiatives at Hewlett-Packard for 28 years, a period when revenue grew from $5 billion to $127 billion. He now uses this extensive experience to guide leaders and their teams to leverage the generative power of people working together to achieve sustainable growth. So Tom, with all of that great experience i mean hewlett packard that, that's uh, uh that's a pretty big one there with all of that great experience that you have there i'm really interested to hear how you answer that first question I start out, all of my guests. When you hear the phrase "responsible leadership," what does that mean to you
1: well there, I take two views of it on on several subjects, so one view is um what we're responsible for in as a leader. And one of those is outcomes that we're trying to, we're being asked to do. We're also responsible for taking care and serving our stakeholders who are requesting those outcomes of us and who are participating with us in helping achieve them. There's a third element or, or aspect of this is. Taking responsibility for oneself and developing the respondability capacity of leadership. How do we develop and grow as context keeps changing around us? So a good example of this is a leader I was working with who was in charge of um, an extensive part of a nuclear power facility. And He was struggling with some of his stakeholders, and we needed to step back a little bit and and ask what outcomes he was trying to achieve. And when, when he began to consider the outcomes he was trying to achieve, he was really wanting to develop a stronger team and have that team better serve the leadership team, the broader community, the industry. Um, So when he began to step back from just the task and making sure the task was done well to considering the outcomes, he changed his relationship with the key employees that he was struggling with. And he also reframed his own view of his purpose and what he was there to do. Uh, So that's a powerful way to consider responsible leadership.
0: No, it really is. I love, I love all of that. I, like I said, folks, we're coming out of the gate swinging here because, you know, it reminds me of a couple of different things. One, growing up in northeast Tennessee, uh, I grew up next to Nuclear Fuel Services, which wasn't a power plant, but uh, they had a DoD contract to um, uh, neutralize uh, basically the fuel for submarines and 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 other Navy vessels that use nuclear fuels. They were uh, rendering it uh, a little less toxic. I'll put it to you that way. It was, you know, there's no such thing as non-toxic nuclear stuff. But so, you know, the, but I knew the importance from having uh, friends and family that work there. And and that's a big project, right? If if people aren't working together and and uh, on the same page, there's a lot that can go wrong really quick. that has a lot of big impacts. But the other thing that I like there and, and my listeners, longtime listeners of the show, they've heard me share this quote several times, but what I heard reminded me of uh, the old General Patton quote that says, don't tell people, uh, don't tell people what to do, tell them what needs to get done and get them out of their, get out of their way and let them dazzle you with their brilliance. And by kind of reframing the the thought process, you allowed everybody to get out of the way and let people come up with, with better solutions on how to achieve that final product. And I think that's just such a smart way of looking at problem solving. So I'm curious in that, like once you got that reframed, like what happened? I'm imagining you kind of uncorked the potential and things really took off from there, but maybe I'm wrong.
1: Yeah, it happens to all of us. I know for me, I can get zoomed in on a specific point and, uh, get really worried about, well, it's got to be just so. And part of that's my engineering background um, and, and the way I was raised, that you need to leave things better than you found them and you need to do it well. And uh, when I get over-focused on that task, I lose perspective. So what I find helps me and helps my clients is, is stepping back to say, well, what's the greater purpose we're serving here? What are the outcomes we really want? And how do those outcomes include, incorporate all the stakeholders involved? And that gives us a different perspective. And, and when when we can see that broader systemic perspective, and then we can see how our interactions affect the system and the people around us, and affect the ability of us as a team to accomplish the objectives that we want. Um, that, that loosens things for everybody because it, it gets us refocused on, well, what do we really care most about?
0: Yeah, no, that, that is good. Yeah. I mean, again, it reminds me, um, I'm trying to remember the gentleman's name. It's going to be a few episodes back, um, but I just can't pull the name out, but he, he said, and and I'm sure it's an old saying. The first time I heard it, he said it's a it's a lot harder to read the label when you're inside the bottle. Um, <laughs> and, oh, that's a and beautiful that. analogy. It is. It is. And and uh, yeah. And, and so that, like you said, we all fall victim to it. Have you figured out why? Why? Why do we all fall victim to it?
1: Well. I have some clues from some of my, my training uh, and it's our nervous system. Our whole biology is focused on looking out for threats and making mm-hmm. sure they go away. And so we've, a problem can be a threat. An incoming email from someone we're worried about could be a threat in our mind. And we could easily go into a, Re- reactive mode of defending or protecting or or just complying to to get along uh, well enough for that to disappear so when we fall into those reactive patterns we, we lose the, our creative capacity to generate new possibilities to generate new solutions so it it's a matter of noticing well how am i responding am i reacting out of unconscious patterns that I've developed up to this point? Or am I able to step back and observe, oh yeah, that's a reaction. I know I've done that before. Now, if I can separate myself from the situation for just a moment and consider the choices I have and what choices would really help me generate a better outcome, and who would I like to involve to help me in thinking it through, and then taking action to make it happen. That's the kernel of what enables generative leadership to happen. It helps us realize we're not alone. We have a team with us, people we can call upon. And when we perceive that, um, it makes it a lot more fun.
0: Well, and I'm glad you brought that term up again, a generative leadership, because, you know, I know a lot of folks have heard generational leadership and all that. But, uh, you know, until getting, you know, the, the pitch to have you as a guest on the show and, and looking through your one sheet, I'd never really heard the term generative leadership before. So, yeah, take a few minutes. Talk to us about that. What, what is generative leadership?
1: Yeah, it's a, it, the way I view it is it's a systemic approach. And it starts with people. Uh, and with people, we build teams. And the reason we build teams is because we need more than one person to be able to get whatever it is we're trying to accomplish done. And the reason we build organizations, um, sometimes people think in a, in a narrow concept, that an organization is there to generate revenue and profit and satisfy Wall Street. Uh, and the reason, that's not the real reason we build organizations. We build organizations to be able to accomplish something that we couldn't do by ourselves, that we couldn't do with just a few people, but it takes an extensive organization to pull some very complex things off, whether it's building the Hoover Dam, the Intercontinental Railroad, defending our country. Uh, We build organizations for a greater purpose. And so um, thinking about, well, what do you need? You need people in that. You need people operating collectively toward common purpose and objectives in teams to bring their different talents together in a synergistic way. And you need to be able to develop a common culture of leadership, uh, shared leadership, so that anybody can see something coming up that needs to be addressed and raise it to the rest of the, organi- rest of the organization. Um, and you need to build a, an organizational structure and support mechanisms that encourages and supports what you're trying to accomplish. From there, you can really then act on, well, what is the business we're in and how do we make that happen and how do we develop the competencies needed uh, in that? Again, from a systemic perspective, all of this is operating in the evolving world. So uh, over the last three years, we've seen a lot of change. We've all had to adapt to do things in new ways, and we've had to do that with our families, our neighbors, our people in our organizations to address what we're now facing in the world today. So thinking about those different levels of interaction and system, then now how do do we generate the leadership we need to influence and guide the system to achieve the outcomes we want to pursue.
0: Mm. Yeah, again, as we were talking in the pre-work up there, you know, my background in the Marine Corps, um a lot of that resonated uh with me because that that's kind of how we it's kind of how we operated, right? In in boot camp, everybody was trained as as a basic rifleman. You were taught the same basic fundamentals, the same leadership traits, uh, the shay- same leadership principles. We had 14 leadership traits and 11 leadership principles. And everyone is taught in boot camp. Everybody is taught the same basic set of skills, You know, navigation, uh, repelling, all of those sorts of things. And then from there, we branch out and we go to our respective schools for whatever our our job's going to be. For me, it was weather. For, you know, somebody It's a radio operator, for somebody else, it's going to be an interpreter of some type. You know, but, but the thing, and this is why what you just said really resonated with me, is because we had that kind of common core, if you will, of, of leadership skills, we all understood the same basic principles of what it means to, to be a Marine, what it means to function in a team, what it means to problem-solve, you know, you could very easily in, in, in uh, you know, whether it's a wartime situation or even in a civilian or, excuse me, a peacetime training exercise, you can take the radio guy or the, the communications guy or the interpreter or the weather guy and put them in, uh, you know, most situations and they're going to be able to identify, they're going to be able to lead because... They can lead in a way that's identifiable to the the, the new team and for the most part, hum along uh, fairly well. You know, they're going to know that, hey, yeah, I'm a I'm a commo guy. I don't understand, uh, you know, what a mortarman does, but I understand enough to know that that person does understand. So I'm going to let my ego get out of the way and trust them to make the right decisions. I'm just here to make sure that, as you keep talking about, the out the desired outcome is what we're moving towards, and so, you know, again, as as you were describing that, I'm sitting here like, uh, you know, this is this is a great model because it reminds me a lot of what we did. So, uh, I don't know if you spend any time with military folks or not uh, very much, but uh, it, it's a good model you've got here.
1: Yeah, I, I had a little bit of experience in my family. My grandfather served during World War II. My father um, was in the Air Force uh, in between wars uh, after Korea. Um, And I've worked, uh, one of my teachers is Dr. Ken Long, who works uh, as a professor now at the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College, um, teaching logistics and leadership. And uh, he's an amazing teacher and one I respect highly. So I, I absorb lessons from him as well. And uh, one, of the, one of the capacities that he's helped me really begin to focus more on is how do we develop creativity and how do we develop, the, and, and in order to develop creativity uh, for innovation, we need to be able to have safety, trust, be able to tell the truth from our perspective and have that be heard and understood, and then, from hearing the collective stories of what people are seeing, that then opens up opportunities for choice, and that generates the opportunity to do new things in a creative way
0: mm. you You said what I think is a beautiful. Combination of words there when you said, "I obviously agree with the trust and respect and all those things." But you said, "Share the truth from our perspective," and I want to hone in on that because that is such a uh, you know a psychologically safe uh, way of putting that, and and I think that's where all of our organizations should be. But when you say the truth from my perspective or the truth from our perspective. I want people to realize what you're saying there, because just because we don't share necessarily the same truth, a lot of people think the truth is absolute, right? And there are some cases where that's true. But when you say from our perspective, it's because people see the world differently from one another. It doesn't mean they're lying. It doesn't mean they're they're necessarily wrong. It's they have a different perspective, right?
1: Yes. And that perspective can be because they have a different viewpoint. They're right. they're seeing things from a different perspective, and, and I'm sure you've got lots of stories from your time in the Marine Corps of when you're out <laughs> in, on an exercise, um, whether it's training or real. The terrain changes, and everybody sees it from different vantage points. Uh, so that becomes critical. Uh, one, of, one of my experiences of this with Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard was they would go around and have division reviews of what was going on in the business. And the first part of what they'd do is they'd walk around and talk to people, whether it was someone on the shipping dock, people on the production line, people in engineering developing products. They'd talk to everybody that they could for the first part of the day. And then they'd meet with the management team. So they already had a flavor of what was going on in the organization. And then they could dive into, okay, so how is the management team of the division um, not only addressing market opportunities in the broader context outside the organization, But they also had a perspective of how people were seeing it and understanding it, where there were similarities, where there was dissonance, where there were concerns, and they could help the leaders focus on, how do we get aligned to a common set of of objectives and leverage the different perspectives each person brings?
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, I... (laughs) again, I like that. And, and you're talking about stories and, and this was, you know, first of all, uh, you know, thank, thank your family for their service, you know, Korea, World War II, those were completely different environments than what we operate in, uh, these days, but just to kind of, you know, give you some perspective there, there was a a, kind of an infamous story, uh, from World War II. Um, there was, uh, there, there was a so there's supposed to be two waves. The first wave was the paratroopers. They were supposed to land, establish, and uh drop smoke to let the second wave, which was the bombers, know where they were so they didn't get bombed. And, you know, again, I'm a weather guy back in World War II. We didn't have all the radars and satellites and things that we did uh we do today. So it was a lot harder uh on those guys forecasting. So what the bombers had in their briefing package was um, drop your bombs downwind the direction the smoke is blowing. That will be ahead of, of the paratroopers. Well, between launch and landing, the winds had shifted. And so the bombers saw the smoke blowing towards them as they were coming in. Their instructions were drop the bombs ahead of the smoke. So they dropped the bombs early and we essentially bombed our own guys because of a difference of perspective. Um, they were doing their job, conditions had changed, and nobody was necessarily wrong. It's just conditions shifted, and nobody realized it and had the communications in place to, to fix the situation. And I think that happens quite a lot in business, doesn't it, where, where we get stagnant and we don't have the communication lines in place. So when the conditions change, we can do a lot of harm uh, before we realize what's going on, right?
1: Yes, and that's why listening to everybody's perspective is critical, because the lone voice may be seeing the change before other people and or maybe protecting something really critical that if not taken care of will lead to major challenges later. So the lone voice is a really valuable voice and it needs to be safe for people to voice what they see. Otherwise, we don't get the truth out in a way that the organization can respond effectively.
0: Yeah, I love it. Outliers are a valuable, valuable thing. Um, well, i tell you what here, Tom, uh, we need to take a quick break here to, to pay some bills. Um, and then we'll pick this conversation up on, on the other side of the commercial break. How's that sound?
1: Sounds good.
0: All right, folks, welcome back. Again, we were with uh, Tom Hardison, and we've been talking about generative leadership. Uh, now, in the bio, uh, I did mention that Tom uh, spent quite a few years with Hewlett-Packard, saw some great growth there. Um, and one of the things that you really focus on is are the challenges when companies start to scale, when they go from, say, 200 plus, maybe to 1,000 plus employees. And uh, generative leadership can help with a lot of those, I imagine. But uh, first of all, let's kind of talk about those because I get a lot of, you know, startups, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of self-identified C-suite folks in here. I don't know that I get anybody who is, uh, you know, in organizations with a thousand plus employees. I may. The demographics just don't get broken down. but. Uh, I can see, you know, again, from the, the military perspective, going from, you know, squadron, platoon, battalion, all those kind of different levels. But but in the private sector, as, as, they, as an organization scales from uh, those sizes, what are some of those problems that they need to be on the lookout for?
1: Sure. Well, what, at, at a structural level, often what happens is as organizations grow, they do it by forming functions, sales, marketing. Research and development, engineering, manufacturing, service delivery. Uh, And and then people begin to optimize what's needed for the function, which is really valuable. That's what they're being asked to do. They're trying to optimize that. And what is often missed is the interdependence that is needed across functions. So this is where cross-functional teams become critical people being able to represent the needs of their functions and the direction of their functions and work cross-functionally together to address major initiatives for the business, whether it's creating new products or services and bringing those to market, or it's leading a change in in underlying infrastructure capacity. IT system change is a big one. Uh, So it's figuring out how to have that ambidexterity. So it's not an either or situation, either I serve my function or I do something else. The critical piece is beginning to think in a both and that we need both functional expertise and cross-functional capacity to lead change in the organization. Um, That becomes really challenging as an organization scales and people become overwhelmed or frustrated with just trying to get their own job done. Typically fast-growing organizations, there's far more to do than there are hours or time or capacity for people to be able to get it done. So how do you help lead people in finding the both-and balance? And how do you develop the expertise of leaders so that that's the expectation, that we are going to get things done through teams, both functional teams and cross-functional teams. And that's part of the leadership responsibility of new leaders is not just to get the tasks done, but to develop the people and the organizational capacity to do this. And that's the generative leadership challenge how do we generate the leadership we need for the organization to scale effectively and sustainably?
0: Mm. No, again, I, 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 I like that. Cause you know, you're kind of talking about a lot of organizations get stuck in their silos and people never get out of it. And your IT department gets pitted against your sales department, your sales department gets uh, pitted against your manufacturing because you know, at, at the basis of it, and I think this is a lot of what you're talking about here is, you, you reach a point where those those departments, if you're not careful, become dependent to one and of one another, and they start seeing each other as adversaries, of competing for resources. And what you're talking about, and I, I like, and, and again, please correct me if I'm misunderstanding anything here, but is making sure that those departments. Don't start seeing each other as adversaries for resources, but how can they work together? So there's more resources for everybody, right?
1: Yes. And I I think you're right on there. It is, how do we view each other as collaborators? How do we view what we're trying to do as a common shared challenge and the, the, when we can find the common purpose and we can find the common objectives, and then we can bring our different functional expertise together to make good decisions of what what's realistic, pragmatic to do with the resources available in this specific area that we're trying to improve.
0: So how do leaders, and again, I, I love this, um, and I know how we did it in the military, but I'm kind of curious from, from the private sector, how do leaders in the private sector really, really build the teams that can do that? What are the steps that they need to do to, to build that cross-functional team that you talked about?
1: Sure. Uh, so uh, I have a 20-minute video that goes into a little more detail, and I'll make sure I get the link to you. Uh, So you can share that with, with the listeners. Um, But there are eight steps that uh, really effective teams build upon over time. And the first is just getting clear on what's the work that we're needing to do and what expertise does it take to be able to do that? And then it's getting clear. The second piece is getting clear to why are we doing that? What are the meaningful outcomes and goals we have for doing that. Um, Third piece is really understanding the stakeholders and the other people and uh, organizations that are dependent upon this initiative and how do we have good communication with them on what we're doing. A fourth piece is what are the relationships we need to build to be able to make it work both within the team and with the stakeholders broader world around the team to make something happen? And how do we develop that psychological safety, the trust, to be able to tell each other the truth where there are dissonant views and see the opportunities to make things better? A fifth piece is really getting into the roles, responsibilities. How are we going to make decisions? How do we hold each other accountable? So our internal systems and ways of getting the things done that need to be done. Sixth piece is a culture of development. We're not just doing this one time. We're doing this and we're developing our capacity to take on these complex challenges. And we're going to keep taking those on because that's what allows us to adapt creatively and provide greater value. The seventh is learning and really being able to step back and observe ourselves as individuals, our team and how we're working and the system around us and how can we better influence and collaborate with that. And the last piece is developing leadership and developing a shared leadership capacity where we can listen and learn from everyone and we can envision a common desired future we can commit to act, and we can practice creating that future now together. Mm.
0: I like those I like those a lot they're they're very well in line again with uh, uh, you know and i've I've made no no bones about it with folks on here the, the what I call the eleven shields of the leadership phalanx are uh, kind of a civilianized version of the Uh, 11 leadership principles that we were taught. And, uh, you know, they they all line up very well with what, what you, uh, what you just said, you know, the, these things like, you know, train how you want to perform, develop your leaders, right. Uh, Look for those opportunities. Uh, Don't be afraid to take those on, but you know, know that there's going to be out, you know, there's going to be outcomes that you're going to have to own. Sometimes there's going to be great outcomes. Sometimes they're going to be bad outcomes. What do you do when, each of those happens, right? It's, it's easy to celebrate the victories, but what do you do in the losses and how do you adapt and, and move on from there without throwing each other under the bus? Um, yeah. You know, I, I like those eight and yes, please definitely send me the, the link to that video. I want to make sure uh, that that gets out there, but um, you know, again, when you're talking about organizations uh, that, that are hitting that, you know, thousand plus employees, that that becomes a lot harder to do on that scale. It's kind of easy to do those things when you're five, 10 people in the same office, when you're a thousand employees spread spread across multiple cities, maybe even multiple countries. How, how can, how can one person do all that?
1: Well, one person can't, it takes everyone practicing it together. And that's the, the collective mastery that gets built. So my experience, again, back at HP, when I joined, there were 80,000 employees in Mm. 40 plus divisions, I believe. And it grew to over 300,000 employees. Um, So how do we do that? Well, we had a common set of values, a common set of objectives. We had shared strategies and practices that we used across the organization. And, and there was regular training. One of the programs when I first joined um, within a couple of years was teaching a process of management class to every manager. And uh, managers were helping facilitate it with other managers along with someone from our, our training team. And it was a matter of developing and applying a common methodology for the HP way um, and the HP process of management and the HP processes for developing products and launching them, uh, a whole host of key practices that the organization has developed. So it's making the investment to, to articulate those, to develop those, to practice those, because that's what makes it come to life, is doing it together, practicing it together. And that's where uh, I believe leadership occurs best in teams. Leadership development occurs best in teams, because that's where we practice it. And what gets practiced is what, what the organization becomes. If we want to develop that cohesive alignment, we need to practice that as we're scaling from 10 people to 50 people to hundred people and beyond. And it, it, it's an investment at a time when everybody's overwhelmed on just get the task done so we can get to the next stage. And so it's finding the both and to be able to both work on the tasks and work on developing the capacity for the organization to to generate the leadership it needs to scale.
0: Yeah, no, again, I I love it. And, uh, you know, it makes a lot of sense to me, but I can can hear it now because I'm sure you've ran into a lot of folks who are kind of skeptical of, uh, yeah, this sounds good in theory, but it can't work in real life. But I'm sure you probably got at least a, a couple of examples where it has worked in real life, right?
1: Yes. Yes. And it's worked uh, on on a really small scale. For example, I was working with a nonprofit. I believe there may be 20 people um, with a nonprofit. And they were struggling with their different roles and responsibilities. And I was asked to to coach with the executive director. And we started talking about, well, how was he approaching it? Again, back to the reframe, he was approaching it as, well, I'm the leader and I need to make sure all this happens. Common, I did that a lot. Common, common assumption many uh, of us can make is I need to make sure it all happens. We reframed it to, well, the things that are being asked of the organization are being asked of everyone. Everyone's got a of a different role. So how do we make it clear what is the common purpose we're here to do and how can we leverage each other's strengths and work toward what we're being asked to do together and figure out roles and responsibilities so we can each get things done independently when we need to and we can work well interdependently. So that organization um, was doing everything in person, had no virtual practices, um, essentially, and the pandemic hit and they switched to virtual and they do counseling, um, a lot of medical practices. They help uh, with uh, people being relocated. Um, they help with people in poverty and they figured out how to do it all virtually. In about two months, they began to put all those practices in place and they came out of the pandemic thriving in a very new way and working better together than they'd ever done before. So that's, that's a small organization example of doing that.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, and and you said something again there that is extremely beautiful that I I hope listeners really pick up on because, uh, you know, that was all good. But the one thing that I really heard you emphasize there, um, and and I'm going to use my own words here, but, you know, we focus a lot on leadership, but not everybody really pays attention to the power of followership. And, and sometimes that can be just as powerful, setting back and realizing that you don't have to be the one that gets everything done. You don't have to be the one that does everything. Sometimes, even though you're quote unquote, the leader, manager, boss, CEO, whatever your title is, it, it, sometimes your best role is stepping back and realizing you're not the best person to lead this project take on a followership, supportive role, and let them do their thing, right?
1: Yes. And and in fact, you, the role of leadership is developing others to lead, too. Not just developing your own self and your own capacity, but it's to develop those around you. And one of my favorite uh, one, quotes from Peter Drucker is uh, the the – The first and foremost job of a leader is to take charge of their own energy and then to help orchestrate the energy of those around us. And if we are seeing ourselves as the one who needs to do all the leadership, we're not taking advantage of how we can help orchestrate the energy of those around us.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that is is so key. So key. Because... I think the the dirty little secret there. And again, uh, I love that, that Peter Drucker uh, uh, quote there because it's so true because we want our leaders to trust us on that level. And when they do uh, you know, that that's how that, that, that term relationship capital, that's how you build relationship capital is by telling that person, Hey, I believe in you. I trust in you to be able to do this. And man, that just breathes life into that person to to be ready to take that next step whenever it, it comes up and, and knowing that you trust and value them enough to put them in a leadership role when they're not quote a formal leader, you know, they don't have the title. And, and like you said, that's how as a leader you develop the next generation of leaders is, is breathe that life into them. So I love that. I love that a lot. Um, well, Tom, we just crossed over the 41 minute mark here. And this is, this conversation has flown by. I've loved every single second of it. Uh, you've been every bit of a guest that I thought you would be and more. So um, I'm really curious before we uh, close out here, uh, is there anything we didn't get a chance to cover that you'd like to leave listeners with?
1: Yes. And I, I think this is something I've heard you talk about as well is um we often get stuck and i got stuck multiple times in my life and career and um, when when i got stuck it's easy to feel alone and feel like well no one else uh, can understand this and uh, no one else can really help me and that's a horrible place to be in that mindset Um, and what i'd say is there are lots of people available that are able to help think through things, figure out different perspectives, generate new possibilities, and help develop the leadership in the organization. And I, I really appreciate the work Earl's doing, and I really appreciate having this conversation with you. Thank you, Earl.
0: Oh, it is every bit a pleasure. Thank you for, for being with us here. And I know my listeners are very excited to find out more about you and what you do, what you have done and what you're going to be doing going forward. So uh, what's a good way for them to find out uh, about all things Tom Hardison?
1: Well, two ways. One, my website is uh, com, And you can find me on LinkedIn at Tom Hardison on LinkedIn, and those are the two best ways to get a hold of me
0: outstanding and and listeners, as always. Uh, we will have those links in the show notes for you so you can reach out and connect and and learn more uh, about Tom uh well again, brother, I, I love everything that you are doing. Um, I love the this concept. Uh, I've got a new term in my dictionary, generative leadership. Uh, we'll be leaning heavily on that. And I just want to say again, thank you very much for everything that you're doing, that you've done, that you continue to do. And thank you for being an outstanding guest here on the Responsible Leadership Podcast. Well,
1: oh, thank you, Earl. It's, it's exciting to have these conversations and I appreciate you, you inviting me on. Thank you.
0: Well, all right, folks, there you have it. Another great show about responsible leadership. I really appreciate you listening. And if you have any feedback for me, please reach out at earl at, That's E-A-R-L at leadership, Phalanx.com. That's E A R L at leadershipphalanx.com. Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the show so these messages can spread further and make a bigger impact. With that, I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode.
1: Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe
0: Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool.
1: 50 years of music with 50 year old white guys.
0: Electric acid.
1: Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. Trick-ass.